Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the Zeitcast. This is Jonathan Martin, and we're doing something a little bit different today. I'm not trying to cheat, but just yesterday, I referred to an episode of my other podcast, Son of a Preacher Man, uh, which has been around for the last, oh, what, year and a half, maybe two years. Um, there was a really special episode we did with a really special person, my friend Brad Jerzak, on hell, judgment, and atonement. I had so many wonderful guests on Son of a Preacher Man, but that episode uh, was the most downloaded, most listened to episode we ever had. I think it just um, it it just turned into something um, just really magical. I, Brad Jerzak and I were both speaking. Uh, that particular summer, not this summer, but the one before, at Brian Zahn's Water to Wine Gathering. And that night back at Brian's house, we had a conversation very organically that, you know, I don't say this often, but just felt somehow really spirit-led. And uh, especially when it comes to these questions that I feel like are back in play now, that we're, you know, really we're always having, but these are pressing questions of the church and religion and culture. Uh, but these conversations around hell and judgment, I just don't think anybody's more qualified to speak into any of that than Brad. Um, uh, he's an amazing uh, writer and speaker as a theology professor. His book, Her Gates uh, Will Never Shut, is, I think, the best book on hell and judgment that exists. So I highly encourage you to read that if you're interested at all, both in terms of how it grapples with scripture and tradition. There's truly nothing, uh, nothing better. Um, he, his book, uh, A More Christ-Like God, is just wonderful. And he just released a follow-up to that, a sequel, which I endorse called A More Christ-Like Way. I'm just crazy about it. So I highly recommend that you read that as well. Really, all of his books and teaching are, are phenomenal. I, I feel like uh, Brad is one of those people who is um, helping to ushering a, a pretty seismic shift in how we think about the character of God. And there's such a grace on his life to do that. I want to have Brian on the Zeitcast for a new conversation, but especially just as we're even kind of driving by some of these ideas around hell and judgment, I just felt like this would be a conversation that would be an, of interest to a lot of you who are new listeners and just kind of wanted to have that in the vocabulary. So um, presenting to you as sort of a best of son of a preacher man, uh, this episode with Brad Jerzak. I hope you enjoy it. Also, just want to encourage you as we're a few weeks into this, if uh, what you're hearing is speaking to your soul, uh, we so appreciate if you like, share, review, certainly if you give on Patreon, which there's a link through JonathanMartinWords.com. Thanks so much for being with me. And I do hope that this episode with Brad speaks to your soul. right now one this is awesome because we're in the home of the ron and perry zon so epic epic people are people are jealous people want to be in this crib right now i'm telling you right now like this is this is kind of a spot would you call this i'm a spot, feeling right? it I'm feeling there's it. an anointing in the room there's an anointing there is a there is a vibe there is a flow an aura so to speak an aura if you will and I'm really pumped about this because all the facetious things aside, um, there is nothing that gets me more excited than being able to share uh, folks who have most influenced my life, my theology, and my journey. And I'm telling you the truth, I can't, there are few living theologians who have impacted me more than Brad Jerzak. That's absolutely the truth. That's shocking. No, that's really true. That's really true. I think, uh, 
your work on on hell. Uh, I, I talked about, and of course, a couple of weeks ago, some of you were able to check out the podcast that we did on suicide, uh, hell, and the God of Hope. But I talked about Brad's book there, or I think it did. If not, it was the backdrop and everything. Um, uh, a more Christ-like God has been so influenced for me. And one of the things, Brad, that I love about you so much too is that I feel like the you know the ideas are not abstract for you. You're not an ivory tower theologian. Like I feel like even and you know you like me come from a more kind of charismatic world. Though Brad is Eastern Orthodox now, which mm-hmm. maybe we'll talk a little bit about that journey. But I feel like there's like this very firsthand experiential dimension to the way you talk about God that just gives it a different character you know yeah it's true in the sense that i i really feel like good theology is meant to be a reflection of uh real life in community with the holy spirit what what the holy spirit's doing in a worshiping community and then the fruit of that and so for me uh, a lot of my theology came out of crises that we experienced through 20 years of pastoral ministry Mm. with um with women who'd been abused or molested Mm. as children with addicts who were actively, you know, trying to come off drugs on the weekend and have communion mm. on Sunday um, with people with disabilities and full-time care their whole lives in chronic yeah. illness and so on. And I'm like, oh, man, is God good? Or mm. like, how how do we say God is good to mm. a teen who's been molested or to somebody who has never known a day outside of a wheelchair? Wow. Do I even believe God is good? And yeah. so a lot of, a lot yeah. of uh, the theological work, I've done has been rooted in those real crises in, mm. in pastoral um, moments of, where I, my faith was challenged and yeah. it's like, do I, can I still trust Jesus? Even? And mm. so um, I'm glad you noticed that, but yeah. yeah, for me, it's very close to the heart. Well, and I, I don't know if this is, I mean, I know this really jumping into the deep end of the pool, but there's so much I want us to talk about. I mean, we've been here the last couple of days for the water to wine conference, which has been for me an extraordinary experience. It's mm. a beautiful couple of days, by the way, I didn't mean to go this long without saying, especially for those who are watching us on Twitter, Mercy Aiken is filming for us and she is a powerful and dynamic woman of God herself. All the Facebook people need to check out her work because it's so good. Um, Mercy right, so, Aiken, A I K E N. Yes. Facebook. She is the evangelist to Facebook. She is of real justice. And it's a zoo out there. Facebook friends. I love y'all. But it's a zoo. <laughs> and But but Mercy uh, is an evangelist to Facebook. And I, everything that basically Mercy says or does here, I turn to a metaphor. Like, Mercy's in the room right now. And it's like it's like we're living in the freaking Pilgrim's Progress right now. You know, it's all and like... Further it's further up like, and further in as well, you know. <laughs> it's so great. But, um, yeah, so we've been here for Water to Wine. But, uh, and, I, and I love the talk that you did so much a couple of days ago on deconstruction, so I want to get there. But since we already kind of got off on this foot to talk about how your theology has been forged through crisis and through pastoral crisis. Let's just go right there. Okay. Um, Her Gates Will Never Shut was revolutionary for me. And for that matter, I highly recommend the documentary Hellbound, which Brad appears in, which he talks about a good bit of that content. But I'd love to just, if we could go right there to talk about the origin of that book, because as you've shared with me, that too was kind of forged, yeah. a book about hell forged in the fire of real crises. Yeah, and so I'll, t- I'll share a couple parts. For me, I was personally experiencing a hellish time. I wrote half the book from my bed. Mm. Um, I had gone through a very severe breakdown after a real year of traumas where in our church we had had, we'd had like so many deaths. I'm talking like three suicides, um, overdose deaths, a gruesome murder, mm. uh, abduction, 
by of one of our people in Central America where there was like eight hours of abuse that happened. I mean, like I, I wrote down 35 things like this in one year and, and I found myself in hell. I'm mm-hmm. like, because it was the first time in my life when I'm like, I don't know if I trust God. Mm-hmm. And so, so that was my personal crisis. But at the same time, um, I had all these people showing up, um, two types of people, people who were very interested in following Jesus. They, they had discovered Jesus were like, this is amazing, but I can't do it. Why can't you do it? Well, because I, I could never believe in a God that would send my dad or whoever to um, eternal conscious torment in a lake of fire. And then other people who are Christians saying, I've walked with Jesus my whole life, and I'm about to walk away. Mm. And wh- I'm like, why? Because I could never believe in a God who would send my cousin to a lake of fire. For And I'm like, well, if this is a deal killer, I should double check whether it really is. Mm. And then out of that, I went back to the scriptures and back to the early church. And my, my main um, my point of investigation was, first of all, uh, how did they see the nature of judgment yeah. in the scriptures in the early church? And it was not, um, it was polyphonic. In other mm. words, there were different ways of seeing it, both in the scriptures that you couldn't harmonize mm-hmm. and beyond the scriptures. And, 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 Second, did you need to believe this to be a Christian? Mm. And what I discovered was like, well, no. And so I, the, the book was the, the fruit of my investigations on that. And I, I don't think I imposed my own new dogma. No. I just said, look, at, here's the ways I discovered that in, in the scriptures and in the fathers and that there were different points of view and you're allowed to have that. And that's one of the things I love most about the book is I feel like you give a fair reading to you know, the, the text first and foremost, I mean, you survey the text, but then such a comprehensive survey of how people thought about hell and judgment throughout history yeah. uh, in a way that's not heavy handed, but that presents all the evidence kind of presents it wrong. I mean, it's just, I just, I find it to be such an even handed book. I, as you studied, as you dove into those texts and into the tradition and the church fathers and all that, what most surprised you from the research? Like what was, what, what were some moments that were just revelatory where you really ran into things that you, you weren't even, you, you, they just weren't looking for? What caught you off guard? Um, so there was two things that I'll share. Well, there were many things, but two that I'll share. Uh, one was the vast difference between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. And what mm-hmm. I discovered was in the Latin West, out of which we get Roman Catholicism and Protestantism and all its branches, there was this idea that there's two groups of people the righteous and the wicked, or the saved and the damned, or the elect and the whatever, two groups of people, and then they would go to two places, Mm. heaven and hell. Heaven was in the presence of God, hell was in the absence of God. And that is a way to see it, and you can do a good Bible study on it, but just as powerfully in the East, their their view was, we all will be salted with fire. Jesus Mm. says this in Matthew 9, Mm. uh, Mark chapter 9, end of the chapter. You'll all be salted with fire, or 1 Corinthians 3 will all go through the fire of judgment, but the judgment is the glory of God, mm. the presence of God. And so this is this is wild because then that meant in the East they, they see it as that that God Himself is heaven and hell wow. based because mm. He's the consuming fire and the consuming fire of infinite love. Mm. So if you love love, God feels like heaven. If you hate love, God feels like hell. And the hopeful thing is that, that 
that the fires of the glory of his love might be efficient in actually purging us wow. of the things that hate love. Wow. That's my hope. Wow. So that was one huge thing. It was a, this different way of seeing it. And that mm. too is in the biblical text. Mm -hmm. The other thing I, was, that surprised me a lot was this word Gehenna that's used for hell in the uh, in the gospel text Jesus uses it a number of times and we often translate it hell but Gehenna is this valley south of Jerusalem and what I noticed was there's two traditions leading up to the gospels one tradition we'll call the Jeremiah tradition where for mm -hmm. him Gehenna was literally the destruction of Jerusalem mm -hmm. and the Enoch tradition that's from between the Testaments, where it's this afterlife fiery judgment. Mm -hmm. And it seems like every time that Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom, is used in Jeremiah, Jesus references those chapters every single time. Mm. And we're like, huh, so maybe he's thinking more about the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction again. But sometimes he's also not afraid to use and subvert that Enoch tradition of the afterlife of the fire and... And, uh, but he does subvert it. And in mm. fact, his death and resurrection then are the punchline to it. Mm. He brings Hades and hell into subjection and, and really destroys them in the, from the inside with his life. Yeah. So yeah. that wow. was all new to me, but I had such good data on that. It, mm. it was wonderful. It felt like a gospel to me. Yeah. Like, it is a gospel to me. And then I discovered, oh, wait, Eastern Church has been preaching this all the time. Mm -hmm. If there's a way, especially in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, that judgment is God himself. And I know yeah. you've talked a lot about and this has also been so instrumental for me, judgment not as, you know, that's not retributive, but is restorative in nature. It, it, is it fair to say that there's even a reading in which judgment is something to be craved, like to, like to, to, to seek after, if judgment purifies rather than destroys. Yeah, I mean, you could, it's sort of like, you're going to experience the judgment, how do you want to experience it? Mm -hmm. So Mark 9 is a great example. Jesus has just said, look it, it's better to cut off your right hand and go into heaven with one hand than into the fires of Gehenna with both. Mm -hmm. Then the next thing he says is this, for you will all be salted with fire, mm -hmm. but salt is good. Therefore, make sure you have salt in yourself. And you're like, what What are you talking about? And what he's just done there is he's taken their tradition of this afterlife fiery judgment. Yeah. And he said, actually, if it's God, it's good. And you can internalize it mm -hmm. on purpose now. Yeah. So, so you're embracing the judgment of fire to, to purge your ego and your attachments mm. in the here and now. Um, in a losing your life way. to find it absolutely, mm. and so that that would be a way of embracing it that you're talking about. Mm. You know, um, having just done this episode on hell and suicide and all that, some of the and I, actually all the conversations I feel like I've had around that have been constructive. But mm. for people that kind of push back a bit um, to say that you know, because especially if you're coming from a more kind of a literalist reading of the, of the text, something a little more fundamentalist. One of the things I find most interesting is that if we're going specifically to Jesus, like yeah. you referred to where Jesus talks about Gehenna, I'm so fascinated that people on one hand will want to take the language of hellfire and lake of fire in a, in a really literal fashion. Yeah. But then 
when Jesus actually uses Gehenna language and when you get, when you've got passive judgment, like Matthew 25, the separation of the sheep and the goats, mm-hmm. or you've got something like the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, yep. that for people who want to be so such literalist about everything, we're shockingly not literal yeah. <laughs> about how the very idea of judgment is applied in those texts. Because the yeah. way I always heard those texts preached was essentially that this is all about whether or not you accept Jesus in your heart. Yeah. But some of these texts that on the surface might seem to be the most violent you know, about judgment and teaching of Jesus really aren't so much about, you know, whether or not we profess a creed, but, but how we treat the least of things. What do you even do with that tension in terms of how it is that we, you know, are so literal and wooden and how we want to apply like, and again, kind of, especially in white evangelical circles, the hellfire stuff, but not necessarily like the, the most clear kind of brazen application of those texts and then how we treat the marginalized and the disenfranchised is incredibly important to God. Like I hardly even know how to address that other than to repent, mm-hmm. you know, like, so, okay. Matthew 25 is the judgment of sheep and goats. All right. Let's be literalists about it. It's not people. It's sheep and goats. So the mm. farm animals are screwed, but we're going to be okay. <laughs> All right. Beyond that though, is it really even a text about the nature of the afterlife judgment mm. or is it using the occasion of the afterlife judgment to make a point about our ethics now yeah. in the kingdom? Yeah. It's absolutely about that. And mm-hmm. so the shocking thing mm-hmm. is we're, we're like, look at that. When I, in her gates will never be shut. I really study. What is the criteria for each of these judgments? Mm-hmm. Well, as good literalist evangelicals, it should be nothing other than faith in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. But wait a minute. What's Jesus saying? Here's the criteria. It's, how you treat the poor, the naked, the sick, the criminal, and and like um, uh, the stranger, which means refugee or immigrant. Yeah. Wow. Okay, that's the criteria, mm. and not only not only is it mistreatment of them, it's every one of the criteria are sins of omission. Well, wow. you, I didn't even mistreat the the immigrant. I just didn't do anything for them. Wow. That's the criteria of the final judgment. Mm. Somehow what Christ is doing is conflating, in a good way, faith in Jesus Christ with treatment of our neighbors. Mm. And he's saying, like in First John, you don't get to separate them. Yeah. Love of God and love of your brother are one and the same, actually. Mm. And so what a shocking parable. And I think that's part of the point is... Yeah. As a parable, it's it's meant to rattle us. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, he doesn't even go after adultery and idolatry and murder. It's just like, I didn't, you know, I didn't feed hungry people. In the early church, I, I should mention this, that fairly quickly they realized it's not so easy as saying who's a sheep and who's a goat. It's mm-hmm. like, on any given day, I'm a sheep yeah. or a goat. Yeah. And so then the judgment of God then comes into you and it begins separating away mm-hmm. true false true and false selves sheep and goat yes. uh, loving care uh, misuse and abandonment and it's like oh my goodness lord have mercy which ends up being the liturgy yeah, lord have wow. mercy mm. Well, and it sure seems to me like there's even a reading in which we could say that <laughs> whether or not we end up being sheep 
largely has to do with how we treat the goats and how we respond to them. That's even dimension of it. Like, you know, wow, how man. we how we respond to those who are other seems to be on the table in this text too. Right. And so it's very easy then for us to to judge, oh, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee. Right. Thank God right. I'm not like the yes. goat. Thank God I'm not like the older brother. Yeah. Meanwhile, the whole, I mean, the punchline of the prodigal son story is actually the father pleading with the older brother. Yes. Calling yes. him into the house too. Because the the younger son had already come. That's not even a problem. We're already pardoning. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's pleading with the older brother. And actually, when Jesus tells the parable, that's mm-hmm. what he's doing. He's pleading with the Pharisees. Oh, come to yes. the banquet. It yes. started, you guys, and you're missing out. And why are you, you mm-hmm. know, so... So there is a kind of pleading rather than condemnation, yeah. even of the fundamentalist other. Right, right. Which is so tricky, you know, because I think for some of us as we go on this journey, it's like we're, we always have someone different who's wearing the black hat. They want to be the bad guys. And like, mm-hmm. then it becomes like, oh, well, we hate the Pharisees. Like, give it to them, you know. And, and, and the, you know, and there's just not that. Yeah. Um, what do you um, – I, I would love for you to respond to – it's it's interesting to me as my theology theology of judgment has evolved, both in my understanding of the text and just my experience of God and life and the world and all that, that I, I feel like people will have a, a kind of visceral response sometimes. The very moment that you deviate from any sort of uh, Augustinian, like really literal understanding of a lake of fire to say, oh, you're kind of you're kind of watering this thing down. But actually my sense of like judgment on the one hand while it's shifted a lot from some of those more fundamentalist views, in some ways judgment seems more terrifying to me than ever. The idea of confronting your true self, seeing yourself in the mirror. Absolutely. Like there really is a, a true terror. It is a, there is a way that it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Like yeah. this, to, to, you know, even if there's space for repentance. And I just, I don't know, I'm just, I feel like a lot of people, the very moment they hear any of these ideas start to be fleshed out in a different way, the first thing that their mind goes to is, oh, well, this is something we're like, okay, Hitler kills himself and wakes up in the lap of Jesus, mm. which nobody really says. Nobody you know what I'm says saying? That. No one is saying that. No. <laughs> what if Hitler has to confront six million Jews mm. and see what he did to them and experience the reality of, with, with no possibility of denial or dissociation, mm. what happened to those folks? And, he had, and not only that, that... They have to face him. This wow. will be a great and terrible day. It's mm. like a truth and reconciliation commission to yeah. end all truth and con- reconciliation commissions. And what would the process be like for for them to forgive him? Mm. Could they even? And that's their judgment. Mm. And yet they'll be healed. And so the Lord will remove uh, the tears from their eyes. And what, mm. what would it be like for him to experience that? I mean, I, I don't know what it's going to look like. I'm just mm. saying that the ancient church tradition didn't make it about, oh, just you're going to be in the lap of Jesus and none of your life matters. Right. This is the problem. So Matthew 25 is a good example. In light of the final judgment, your life absolutely matters. And this life is all you are going to have to present to God. And yeah. you don't get to do it again. Yeah. It's like, oh my goodness, there may be weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Mm. When I see the harm I've done people, right. when I realize I can't go back in time and undo it. But then the God of mercy who triumphs over judgment begins to wipe the tears from my eyes. Mm. And, he, and he shows me the healing work he's doing and mm. has done in the folks that I've harmed. You notice how it's the judgment is not about them then, it's about me. Yeah, well, 
I'll tell you one funny story. Oh, please do. So there's this there's this guy, St. Siloan the Athenite. He was a monk in the 20th century on, on Mount Athos. And he, he really believed in ultimate redemption, the possibility mm. that all could eventually be included in, in eternal life. But he had a... He had a disciple who was like really quite gleeful about other people going to hell. Mm. And this is what happened. He comes to him and, and, and St. Siloan says this, if, if you should find yourself in the New Jerusalem someday and you were to discover that even one of your brothers was outside the city, mm. would you not implore the Lord of glory to allow him in? Would you not even offer to go out and get him yourself? Would you not even offer to take his place outside the city? And if you did that, would you not have solved the problem of hell? Mm. But if you didn't, your heart is made of iron, and there's no need for iron in paradise. Wow. wow. And so he turns it on the guy, right? And, it's, and then he said, so when you're thinking about hell, don't think about anybody else except you. But yeah. despair not. <laughs> wow. Uh, and so... I mean, it was an interesting rhetorical move, but it, I, I look at it that way now. Yeah. The only person who might be in hell, in my mind, is me. Yes. But and does, I know we live in very shape by Von Baldessar, right? Yeah. Like, does he make a similar move? Like yeah. this idea, like you can't, mm. you shouldn't be able to conceive of anybody else in hell other than yourself? Yes. And and then, but along with that then, and even if I make my bed in Sheol, mm. thou art there. Wow. Yeah. Thou art there. Because mm. the, Christ descends into the lower moon. yeah mm-hmm. i think that, so this is a good show that we could do for hans von baltazar dare we hope that all men be saved yes. fantastic book that's so influenced both of us me. absolutely yeah it's such an important book mm. do you um i mean i have so many questions about this do you uh, I, one of the one of my favorite things in the book because it maybe it's been done elsewhere but i definitely had not been confronted with this before and i know i've preached this a lot of different places since because mm-hmm. once you see it in the text like you can't unsee it yeah but the whole move there of, and I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pitch you the softball right here and just okay. let you just swing I'll and see just see if go. I can hit the fence. Yeah. But the whole narrative and revelation of like the nations and the kings uh, of the earth are the ones who are making war against the Lamb. Yep. And how then all of that goes down as we get from Revelation 19 to 21? Can you just talk about that because that movement to me is fascinating. Yes. In the text. All right. So backstory in Revelation. 1 up to 20, the whole set, The, only, the there, there's two groups, the nations and the bride. Mm-hmm. And so the nations are always the ones who have been deceived by the Antichrist and who worship the Antichrist and who persecute the bride. So they're mm-hmm. always, always the bad guys. Yeah. Then you get to chapter 20, and it's the final showdown where the nations gather to make war against the Lamb, and mm-hmm. he comes, and, and, then, and then they're obliterated. And... It's a bit strange because it, part of the text says they're the ones consigned to the lake of fire, but some of it just says, well, no, they're, uh, they're destroyed, and then the birds come and eat them. Mm-hmm. Well, which is it? Well, mm-hmm. it's two metaphors. Mm-hmm. So, but, so then the righteous go to eternal life, and, and the nations go into the lake of fire, and it lists them as the wicked, and it, specifically, who are the wicked? And there's a list. And then we act as if that's the end of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you know? There's two more chapters. So in, in, in chapter 21 and 22, now after this final judgment, after the wicked have been separated and thrown into lake fire, after that we have the new heavens and the new earth, mm-hmm. the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. The new Jerusalem is the bride. Yeah. And it's on earth, and God is dwelling with the bride in, in the new heavens and the new earth. 
and, and, and we live happily ever after. Except wait, the wicked are outside the city. Mm. Which, by the way, Gehenna. Yeah. The flaming garbage dump outside the city. So mm. the, the folks in, that were in the lake fire in chapter 20 are now outside the city in chapter 21. And then, John says, the gates of the city will never be shut. Mm. And the spirit and the bride will say, come. And the, the kings will bring the glory of the nations into the city, yeah. and they will eat of the tree of life on each side of the river that flows from the throne of God. Man. What are they eating? The, the leaves for the healing of the nations. The healing of the nations. So this tells me that um, in this present evil age, we are looking forward to a coming age. We'll call it the, coming, the age to come. It is an age of judgment. It is an age of process. There's mm -hmm. definitely process happening in those chapters. Yes. And the process is people are coming in. They're having their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. They're eating of the healing leaves. They're experiencing the life of the river. That's not the end, though. But wait, like the Bible ends there. Well, we have a stronger telescope that can see past the age to come. Mm. It's called the end of the ages, and that's First Corinthians 15. Yes. Mm. At the, so, so Revelation only takes you into that process. Mm. 1 Corinthians 15 tells you that there's something beyond that process where every enemy comes under the feet of Jesus, where even death itself is destroyed, and then Christ gathers yes. up everything and hands it over to his Father. Yes. And the early church fathers like Clement of Alexandria, Origen of Alexandria, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianza, St. John Chrysostom, all these guys, and God will be all and in all. Mm. And so it's... And, and so it's beautiful because, you, you know, uh, my, my universalist friends like Robin Perry, for example, he yeah. would just say, well, what does the Bible say is going to happen? Every eye shall see him. Mm -hmm. Every knee shall bow before him. Every tongue will confess. And the word there is for like, mm -hmm. if any tongue confesses, Jesus is Lord. Mm -hmm. So that's why they're very, you know, they're very confident. I would say I'm more in the hopeful camp in the sense of I want to put my faith in Jesus, not in a doctrine. Yeah. And I want to say that it needs to be a willing response. Yes. But um, I'm very hopeful that ultimately all will make that willing response. Well, like the way Balthasar puts it, like we, we pray that all will be saved. Yeah. We hope that all will be saved. We preach for all to be saved. Yes, He's but willing. we're not given assurance. That's, that's one of the things I loved about your book, too, is that mm. I feel like it's so revelatory in the way, and, and you know, again, you're, you're so cautious to kind of like present all sides of the actual, the biblical text, the mm. tradition. And yet one of the things I love so much is that I feel like there's a fundamental humility at the end that there is this, there is this sense that like, you know, this is a little bit beyond our pay grade here. We're not yeah. in a place to make definitive pronouncements about the afterlife. That's right. That's right. What we can make definitive announcements is, are, are, are that, you know, that we, we put our hope in Jesus Christ. But it, yeah. the hope isn't wishful thinking. Yes, It's the blessed hope where on Christ the solid rock I stand, all yes. other ground is sinking sand. So it's what so I'm good. not doing is trying to set up a doctrine of certitude or right. kind of corner ourselves in a sort of determinism that violates free will. Yes. Nothing like that. It's just we keep looking at Jesus. Yes, And we believe, I believe, that, that he is... He's the thing that will satiate the thirst that's coming. Mm -hmm. And there, so the question yeah. is this: Are you thirsty? Well, wow. and in the in, and that's the question in yeah. Revelation twenty one and twenty two. Mm. Anybody who's thirsty 
can come drink. Yes, yes. And the end with this invitation, the spirit and the bride say, come, it's yeah. an invitation. Yeah. And so often we haven't heard those texts, and I love Phyllis Tribble's uh, just phrase, a text of terror. Yeah. And like within what we think of as text of terror, we haven't heard the invitation in them to come. So um, in the midst of all of this, and maybe yeah. this is a good transition, first of all, I just about need to stop and take a praise break because all this kind of like, this is so, it just makes me fall in love with Jesus more every time. I mean, I feel emotional right now talking about this because I think like, I don't think this is wishful thinking and I don't think it's a revisionist way of looking at the text. And I think what we're doing, so I love about Brad's book so much. I mean, he takes the text so seriously, but more than anything where you landed there, the God of the text, placing our faith in that God that we believe to be fully revealed in Christ, which to me, which, which builds such a bridge to, your last book, which I think is so important. I'll go ahead and make the plug now. I'll do it again before the end of the show. But I feel like Christ Like God is such a foundational book. I think everybody needs to read it. Because, you know, for all the things that I've shifted on theologically in my life, and I've changed my mind about a number of things, and I'm very much in process. And the way that I think, you know, we're following, you know, the God of the Exodus, we should be on a journey. God's on the move. We should be on the move. But but what I love most about your work, and I feel like this has so become the thrust of my own life, like, to... To me, the ultimate thing for you and what I read is the character of God. Yes. The character of our king. What can we know about the kingdom of God if we don't understand the fundamental character of the king? Because the character of the king is the whole ball game, And that's why I think Christ like God is so important. Because it's, it, it so gets into the question of who is this God fully revealed in Christ? So maybe to shift gears there, what can you say about that and how even all this then gestures into the, the, the revelation of, of Christ, who is this king and what is this God like? Wow, that's that's such a wonderful question. I can't like because we have such good news about it. Yeah. So here's what I've come to believe as I read the, the Bible is, and really leads to a climax, actually, like in the Gospel of John and the first epistle of John, where over many, many centuries of wrestling in a and this debate among rabbis and about progressive revelation or illumination, mm-hmm. and as, as blinders are beginning to be taken off, and then as Christ come, God comes yeah. in Christ in the flesh, we discover that God is in his very nature love. Mm-hmm. That God is not like the like Zeus or Molech or, or all of these destruct God is love in his essence. And yes. what essence means is love plus nothing. Mm-hmm. So it's not that he's love plus he's righteous or yeah. plus he's holy or plus he's wrathful or anything like that. No, he's, he's love, period. And think if you think of that as a, a pure diamond, then all the other tr- attributes of God, and think what attributes is, I attribute mm. things to God. Every other attribute, including righteousness, holiness, justice, yes. you know, even wrath if you want, yes. it must, must be a facet of that diamond. It can't be in addition to it. And this is the early church fathers. That's yeah. how they saw it. And so if you have like a holiness that's not love, well, that's not God. That's the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. If you have like a kind of justice that isn't love, then that's not God. That's the ones who crucified God. Yes. And so yes. you, you start with God is love, period. And if, but then also, so, so we've had a lot of things that we've loaded into the word God. Yeah. And now we have a content for this God, and it's mm. it's Christ revealed. And Christ is not just one side of God, as if you've got a good cop, bad cop thing going, or that Jesus needs to save you from the Father. No, mm. Colossians says, all the fullness of the Godhead, that's yes. Father, Son, and Spirit, yes. all the fullness is revealed in Jesus Christ. Yes. All right, so then he comes along, and it's like, second problem is, 
We have also loaded a lot of weird stuff into the word love. Sure. So now we need to give content to the word love, and that content is seen in the life and teachings and ministry of Jesus Christ, and it comes into clearest focus on the cross. Mm -hmm. And so on the cross, you get to see the clearest revelation we have in history of the nature of God as love. And I'll unpack it. This kind of love revealed in Christ that God is self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. Yes. He's emptied himself into the world as love. He's on the cross. He forgives even his torturers and, and, and the mm-hmm. wicked who conspired against him. Mm-hmm. And then and then he co-suffers with all the victims of violence and injustice and mm-hmm. oppression and draws that up into himself and recycles it as love or recycles it as forgiveness and restoration. Yeah. And through his wounds, then that's poured out into in, into the, the very things we're seeing in our world right now. Yeah. So that's kind of how I see God. I see him through Christ, and I see him through Christ crucified. Mm. Uh, the resurrection uh, tells us that in, in the end, love wins. Mm-hmm. But, it, but to see the nature of that love, you look to the cross. Yeah, which it changes. And then as it was for, I think, the writers of the New Testament, like for Paul and the other epistle writers, they're so punch-drunk in love with Jesus, then mm-hmm. how they see Jesus informs how they read every other text and relativizes how they read every other text. Yeah. Every other metaphor, every other image of Yeah. He says it this way, that whatever you think of the Old Testament, for example, however you read it, here were Jesus' takeaways. Mm. Love God and love your neighbor. Mm. Beyond that, you might have debates or whatever, but but the, Jesus says these texts are, are about loving God, loving your neighbor, and also pointing to him. Yeah. Um, I, I was really frustrated with some of the what we call the toxic texts. And, mm-hmm. I, and, and I went to Archbishop Lazar, my spiritual father, and I'm like, mm-hmm. what do you do with these? Like, look what it's saying about God. And, and, and he said, oh, this, is not, this is a revelation. It's just not a revelation of God. Mm-hmm. Like, well, what's, what is it? It's a revelation of us. It's a yeah. mirror that we hold up to ourselves and we go, mm-hmm. oh, my goodness, we still go commit genocide in Jesus' name. Yes, yes. Even Je- right. not just Yahweh, but in right. Jesus' name. And and the text reveals this, and but then it takes us towards God coming himself in the flesh. Yeah. And what, I love the word you use, relativizes. So he would say it this way. Um, any scripture... The claims to be a revelation of God must bow before the living God when he came in the flesh. Wow. Right. Did y'all hear that? I just hope everybody just heard that. Good grief. Yeah. That's powerful. It was a, it was a game changer Ooh, for me because geez. then I'm like, A, no, this First Samuel 15, when, when Samuel says that God says that Saul must go yeah. kill men, women, children, babies, that this, I'm like, but. That's not the God revealed. That's not the Abba Jesus revealed. And, yes. and Archbishop Lazar says, well, of course it's not. Mm. What's revealed there is how we still fall into that same thing. And that's why you don't get rid of 1 Samuel 15. Right, yes. Because yes. we still got guys like in government willing sure. to do that. Sure, absolutely. Um, so we're not throwing those texts out. Not, you know, not no, they're, them. 
utterly, utterly necessary, mm-hmm. but they're not. They're not the revelation of the heart of right. God. Jesus is. Right, right. I tell you what, my um, I'd love for you guys to meet at some point, and I hope he hears this, but my friend, Dr. Chris Green, who teaches at the Pentecostal Theological Seminary, one of my very best friends, Chris and I, years ago, we did a series together where we talked a lot about biblical interpretation. We've had, we've jammed some of these things out in conversation over the years. But like stuff like at this point, because uh, we talk about this passages like this a lot, like I so read all the Bible through the lens of Christ that when you go back and you read a text, like say, for example, when God's getting ready to wipe out the Israelites yeah. and Moses is pleading. Well, if you read, if, if Jesus is the lens, if Jesus is, is the interpretive grid through which we understand this entire story, and especially like more in kind of an Eastern way of thought, which is so different than how we think of the West, like who really reveals God in that text? Well, I, I think it'd be fair to say, not the God character, Moses, yes, who yes. is the advocate, who is pleading, is the one that, that most reveals Christ in that text. And, and to think, because Chris talks a lot about how, like, Scripture works on us on an effective level. It, it shapes our affections. Like, is it not possible that even the trajectory of the Old Testament forms us in such a way? Because nobody reads that and says, like, yeah, we want the Israelites to die. They're like, yeah, they're with Moses. We're right there with Moses. We're pleading. No, God, don't give them another chance. Don't give up. Like, is it not possible that the very movement of the text is to push us to become the kinds of people? Is that not the intention all along? So that to, to make us advocates and not accusers. Like, that, that's always where we're supposed yeah, to go. Yeah, yeah, The text was always setting us up for Jesus in that way. And, you know, like Brian's great phrase that's so simple, and I'm going to butcher it right now, but, you know, uh, God's... God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. Once we did not know this, now we do. Like and yeah. when we go back and we read this through the prism of what we know to be true about Jesus, I just feel like so much gets messed up when people, like for example, they read, they have this under, they have a, a really literalistic maybe understanding of Revelation, and they read the Gospels through that lens, yeah, rather than reading Revelation through the lens of the Gospels. You know, it's just like it's which is, yeah, yeah. I'm there's a couple. Oh man, you almost slayed me in the spirit there, brother. Um, <laughs> so. As I'm prone to do. Yeah. Well, it happens in my spirit, man. <laughs> I do love it. So um, I love spirit, man. So there's a couple things that, that were triggered in me as you were saying that in a beautiful way. I, one is, how do we teach this to children? And yeah, uh, I yeah. discovered this as I was being interrogated over three days by a nine-year-old whilst mm. trying to have holidays. And, um, and I, I, I found a couple really neat, simple keys that... I think helped me as much as they did the kid. Mm. said, first of all, what if we were to use a Jesus hermeneutic? That hermeneutic, for those who don't know, means that your interpretive method. Yeah. The Jesus hermeneutic, or the interpretive method of John 10, verse 10. It's the thief who steals, kills, and destroys. Mm. But I have come that you would have life and that more abundantly. When Jesus says that, it's God saying it. And God doesn't change. That's right. So when I read back into those texts, I can look for death dealing, and I go, Mm. oh, death dealing is from the thief. Yeah. I can look for life giving, and I see, oh, that's, that's God. So that's the first thing. We use John 10.10, and then that raises the question, but then why does the text say, God Mm. said, go kill them? And this is where Peter ends is really good. Um, And he he gives this simple phrase that I just love. He says, because God let his children tell the story. Mm. Wow. So when I put those two things together, it's like super simple then, right? Yeah. And and I I think helpful. 
But you also mentioned Revelation. And by the way, you wrote a children's book, right? I, I've written a couple children's okay, yeah. books. Mm. Yeah, one's called Children, Can You Hear Me? Mm. Where we help children hear the voice of God. Mm. Um, and the other's called Jesus Showed Us, where we mm. see how Jesus showed us that God is love. Wow. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks for the... For that, that's, I want people to check it. Yeah. I want people to get these resources because we do want children to 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 not have to unlearn all the things we had to right. unlearn. So right. I, I, yes, you know, I did I did postdoctoral studies so I could write about the cross to children because awesome. we need to learn how do you say this to yes. kids? Yes, um, and then the gospels do become our central authority. Uh, that's where we have the eyewitness accounts of who right. Jesus is and what he was about. Mm -hmm. The book of Revelation really is must also serve those texts. Mm -hmm. And they do when you understand that they are right. they're um, um, symbolic texts for how the gospel works, not yes. literalist texts about yes. how Jesus will slaughter millions of people. One right. That's right. not what's going on. Right. And also those were those were not eyewitness encounters with yes. the living Lord Jesus. Uh, the book of Revelation, I was reading it the other day in Greek. Mm. Um, who cares? But, you know. As you uh, do. I read it in Greek because I'm so bad at Greek that it slows me down, mm. honestly. Yeah. And what it says is that God gives Jesus a revelation, and Jesus takes that revelation, and he gives it to an angel. And then the angel comes, and then he gives it to John, and then John comes, and he begins to write it down and, and share it with these churches. And... I'm like, well, that's good, but mm. it's not on the same level of authority as the eyewitness accounts of the incarnation itself mm. in Matthew, mm. Mark, Luke, and John. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so even though when we talk about like the Old Testament needs to bow before the living God, so did the epistles and Revelation. Yeah. yeah. And so the pinnacle of it we see in the Gospels. Mm, I love that. You know, um, so much happening right here and so much exciting. By the way, for those of us who are listening, uh, those who are listening to the podcast or watching on uh, Twitter or Facebook, I should probably say, if you sense a disturbance in the forest, if you sense kind of a, a different kind of anointing, if you will, the right Reverend Brian Zond and William Matthews just walked into the room. So if you're, if you're, if you, if there's a different intensity in the presence, that's what's happening right now. <laughs> so I guess double force. Yeah, I, I can only say I'm glad I was sitting at the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's so awesome. That's so awesome. But I, you know, I didn't plan to talk about this at all. But I feel like we have to go here for it's over because it's all connected. Uh, and as even as my battery's going low on my computer, um, so. All of this work, about, we've talked about hell and judgment. We've talked about most most of all the Christ-likeness of God, which mm. is the big idea of the whole story to me. How, how then do we think about atonement and the cross? Because I know this is crucial for you, and it's become crucial for me. you got to talk about the cross and atonement. like Because if if all of this story has to contour to the good character of this God, then what do we do? with a lot of the stuff that we've heard about the cross. Yes. Well, what I heard about the cross when I was growing up is that the gospel is that God is too holy, righteous, and just to look upon sin, and he cannot simply forgive it. He mm. must punish it. Mm. He cannot get off that hook. And as our good friend Brian Zahn sometimes says, it's, it's as if he's accountable to a higher God called Justicia, mm -hmm. justice, mm -hmm. or wrath even at times, yeah. right? And, um, and I didn't just hear that as an atonement theory. Well, mm -hmm. I, I have to finish it. Then because he can't just forgive it, he must punish it. There are only two choices. He must punish it in the sinner, 
through eternal conscious torment because the sin was against an eternal one. Yeah. Or he must punish it in his son who is an eternal one. Mm. Um, and, and so, but it has to be punished. And then having punished it in his son, in your place, he can then forgive. Mm. Well, that, that's an atonement theory that we call penal substitution that was developed by John Kelvin in the early 1500s. I thought it was the gospel. Mm. It's not the gospel. It's an atonement theory. It's a theological speculation on how the gospel works. Well, then mm -hmm. what's the gospel? The gospel is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yeah. It is the story of Jesus, incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And um, But then that still begs the question of, around atonement. Atonement's this English word that used to mean reconciliation mm -hmm. at one minute, but it's morphed into appeasement. Mm -hmm. I have to atone for my sins. It's like, mm -hmm. no, reconciliation is about what was done for reconciliation to happen. Mm. What was done for uh, for God to rescue us from Satan's sin and death? What did God do to make things right? And what does the cross have to do with that? Mm. Well, first of all, the cross isn't the only part of the story. It's yeah. the climax. Yeah. But um, God makes things right by entering the human condition yes. to heal the human condition. Yes. And every aspect of the human condition, he must overcome, including death itself. And yeah. so he does. And so he rescues us from, from sin by forgiving us. He actually is free to forgive and always was and always did. Hosea, Old Testament prophet, that's the whole lesson of it. God is free to forgive without punishment. He's yes. free to yes. pardon without payment. And always has been. Forgiven. And always has been. And now this is revealed to the uttermost on the cross as we're murdering God, but mm. also decisively so for all people, for all times, for all sins. Mm. Radical forgiveness. But also, sin introduced sin was a fatal disease that brings us under the curse of death, yeah. and so um, he needs to rescue us from. And that's why, uh, the, in his humanity, Christ smuggles God into Hades and yeah. blows it up from the inside. Yeah, I love that. Are you feeling like we should plug in the computer at this point? Because I see a cord right over <laughs> that's there. That's true. Yeah, um, yeah. What you keep going, you keep being anointed and flow, and I'm going to plug it in. While you're doing that, so keep keep talking about well, this because well, you're now, killing it. Speak now right, that I have got right rid of my friend, um, <laughs> and so, out of the way. so what <laughs> happens is when we when we take the necessity of penal substitution, when we, when we take so out good. that, then often the question comes to us: Then why did Jesus die? What 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 is his death accomplished? If it's not about punishing Jesus for uh, our sins in our place, then why do it? And so. Um, uh, we do need alternative because then folks are like, well, then the cross doesn't matter. Of course the cross matters. Here's how it matters. Um, and I, I've laid it out this way. Do you want to come join me again? No, keep going. Keep going. You're good. This is so, great. Don't stop. So here's why the cross matters if you're using alter alternatives to penal substitutionary atonement. It is a definitive revelation of the nature of God. Mm. So it shows us who God is. And we covered this earlier. The definitive revelation of the nature of God as self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. Mm -hmm. But it's also this decisive act, not where Jesus saves us from God, but where God in Christ saves us from Satan, sin, and death and mm -hmm. reconciles us to himself. And again, another Zondism, 
is, is that God didn't need to be reconciled to us. He never turned from us. He yes. was never separate. He's always in ra- uh, you know, mad pursuit of us. Yes. It's we who needed to be reconciled to God. We, humanity needed to be turned to him. And there's a beautiful passage in Athanasius, mm. early 300s. I'm into early church fathers. That's an orthodox yeah. thing, I guess. Where he sees it as like all of humanity had a head named Adam. Mm-hmm. And Jesus, and, and with Adam as the head, all of humanity was under this curse of death and rebellion and running and whatever, hiding in shame and so on. But then uh, w- we get a head transplant. Mm-hmm. And so God plants Jesus' head on humanity. Mm-hmm. And what if, if now humanity, the whole human race collectively has Jesus' head on it, mm-hmm. what does he do with it? He uses his head to turn us back to God. The mm. reconciliation mm. happens. Mm. And uh, that's happened for all people. Yeah. And now we would say, and now there's a summons that all would participate in that. Mm. And yet, how many people have heard this version of the gospel that God does not look upon sin or sinners? Like, I mean, people have heard this in pulpits all their lives. Yeah. And where did we get that? Well, we got it from half a verse in Habakkuk, where mm. Habakkuk's complaining to God. Your eyes are pure and holy. You're too righteous. You can't look on sin. Mm. Second half of the verse. So why do you? Mm. Wow. <laughs> and in fact, if God can't look on sin, yeah. this, is a, this is a dramatic demotion of Jesus Christ. Yes. As far as I know, Jesus is God. Yes. And he had no problem eating with sinners. All he ever did, eyeball to eyeball, face to face. So, so what? that's a kind of Arianism, or mm. it's a demotion of Jesus as less than God, mm. if you say God can't look at sin, but Jesus was with sinners. And this yeah. is, a, okay, that's a formal heresy. Yeah, yeah. And so we need to repent Whoa. of some of these heresies that have made Jesus less than God and God unable to look on us with love mm. because the Bible says he did. Yes. And I believe slanders, it slanders the character of God. Yeah. It impudes the character of God. It's a mystery. It, it really, it's a, it, it's in fact, um, St. John Cassian of the fourth century said it this way. If you, if you talk about God and you, you say God is angry and he's wrathful and you, you think that that's literally true. He mm. said this, You've created an idol and a monstrous blasphemy. Wow. That's how the early church saw it. Because for mm. them, no, God is pure love revealed in Jesus. Yes, yes. And yet, because I know these questions are coming up as people, especially are hearing this for the first time. So what do you do with the wrath of God? Mm. The phrase that we get a lot in Paul in particular, there's language of wrath. Yeah, there, uh, so wrath, um, I'll say, I'll, I'll do the quick version and unpack it a little bit. Um in the end, wrath becomes this metaphor for the self-destructive consequences of our own rebellion. Mm. Wow. In other words, if my dad says, don't touch the stove and I touch the stove, wrath mm. is not my dad burning me. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wrath is the stove burning me through my own actions. Yeah. The judgment is intrinsic to the sin. Mm. So the I mean, wages of sin is death. It is intrinsic. Yes. The way yeah. so think about the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life. There's a yeah. contrast. Yeah. One is wages and one's gift. Mm-hmm. One's sin. One's and in what, what Paul is saying is so so where's the wrath coming from? It's coming from your you. Mm. Now we know this that, that earlier in the Bible, um they're, they're they're assigning this wrath to God as an anthropomorphism yeah. of their experience. Mm-hmm. So Wrath literally means uh, violent anger. It's one of the seven deadly sins in Roman Catholicism. So early on, they'd say, well, when we sinned, 
something violent happened to us, and mm -hmm. because the violent thing that happened to us was because we disobeyed God, he must be angry. Mm. So they would project it, it onto God, their experience of the consequences of sin. So it's like God says, like, trust me. Don't trust Egypt or mm. Babylon will come destroy you. Mm. So then Jeremiah writes Lamentations. It's like, why did God destroy us? Mm. He put, like, stones in our mouth and crushed our teeth. It's like, well, actually, that was Babylon. Yeah. Did God do that? So um, by the time you get to Isaiah, they're starting to sort this out. And Isaiah will say, well, yeah, Babylon was the wrath of God. But really, what we mean is God, God gave us over. In other words, God consented yeah. to, our, to our decisions yeah. and the consequences. And then Romans 1, this, Paul says it three, that's how he defines it three times. So mm -hmm. God gave them over. God gave them yeah. over. God gave, what did you want him to do? Handcuff you to a gurney? Yeah. Hmm. No, he's, he's going to let you experience mm. Your choices, yeah. and he will give you the dignity of bottoming out, like we yeah. do in twelve-step recovery. Wow. Um, finally, then um, Romans five, it, it, it will finally say, "God, you know, God sends Jesus to save us from the wrath." Some translations add, "Of God." It's not in any manuscript. Mm -hmm. By that time, rabbis saw wrath as a synonym for Satan. Hmm. Wow, and they're they're yeah. rooting this in the wisdom of Solomon, chapter eighteen, where it says that God sends the Messiah to do what to to destroy the destroyer and yes. overcome the yes. wrath. Yes, wow. So who's so there's this distancing as you go on through the scriptures mm -hmm. of God from being the active agent of violent anger to yeah. the savior from it. Yeah, and it's a beautiful ongoing revelation. Um, comes to its climax in Jesus as mm. the one who saves us. Mm. And no longer do we have this horrible, you know, the father is the bad cop and Jesus is the good cop. Oh, it's so, so, it's so hard for him to hear that now, you know? I think so. Because, so the good cop, bad cop thing, and also the father turning from the son and the yeah. cross, that whole thing, that's, a, that's another formal heresy in that it severs the Trinity. The yeah. ancient liturgies all said this. We believe in one God. Yes, yes. One in essence and un Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in essence and undivided. Yeah. Any kind of division that we put into the Trinity, whether it's a moral division of like good cop, bad cop, yeah. or some kind of even temporary split between Father and Son, that mm -hmm. we've, we've, we've left the Orthodox faith at that yes. point. Now we're just yes. making stuff up. Yes. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So good. You know, I just, I have to pause for a second just to say, I know we've gotten to so many things, but I just hope people are feeling the weight of this right now. Cause I truly believe like what we're talking about here. And I, and I, I'm in this in such a humble way, but I just believe that I, I don't think what you're hearing is a version of the gospel or kind of a riff on the gospel or some interesting quirky sidebar. Like this is the gospel. This, this yeah. is the revelation of who God is. God revealed in Christ. Like this is the message. And I feel like so many people who, and it's well-intentioned all that, but have settled for a lesser God and a lesser gospel. And he's just, he's just so much more beautiful than we've dared to imagine or think. And, and you know, the, the thing that, that drives me craziest sometimes, Brad, is that, I feel like so many people who know Jesus experientially, intuitively they grasp this. Yeah. Like somewhere deep in here, they know something's wrong. They sense something's wrong with that other version of the message, but there's just not a construct headwise 
theologically that gives them permission to go where their heart really already is. Yeah, yeah. And when I came into contact with my spiritual father, he said, you not only have permission to go where your heart has been pointing, you are required to. But there's this beautiful way you can test it. Mm. Ephesians chapter 3 says this, that Paul kneels before the father and he prays that the father would give them the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to see what their what surpassed knowledge yeah what surpassed rationalism you won't mm-hmm. you won't see it in the natural you're going to have to perceive it through your the holy spirit yes, in your yes. spirit <laughs> <laughs> that's what, in your actual spirit in your actual spirit so he says so basically he and, and then later in the same chapter he, he says this is going to be beyond what you could ask or imagine yeah. it is going to be a knowledge that surpasses you know it's it surpasses knowledge you you can't perceive it without the holy spirit in you and what is it you'll you'll perceive mm. that the love of god is higher wider deeper and longer mm. than you ever could have imagined it's mm. more beautiful um even to unpack those words longer in duration his yes. mercy endures yes. for how long forever. forever his loving kindness forever. lasts until you die no it's everlasting it's, yeah. it's a long it's come a on. longer love than you thought come on wider love than you thought is is about inclusion mm-hmm. there is nobody outside mm-hmm. the reach of those outstretched arms on the cross yes. if you can if you can think of somebody who is beyond that reach, your picture of Jesus' arms is too short. Mm. It's his this, the, his wingspan yes. is wider yes. than that. Yes, deeper. You if you think he can only go into the gutters mm. and the ditches, you, then you haven't seen what he did on Holy Saturday when he mm. went to the lower parts parts of the earth and to the very bottom of hell yeah. and found Adam and Eve there and raised up humanity with mm. himself. It's way deeper than you ever thought, yeah. and then higher. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high as his mercy for those who fear him. We're talking like at least 13.8 billion light years. The higher as the heavens are, yes. I mean, his, his mercy is higher. Yes. So then what I do then is I will take competing images of God. Mm. And I will say, which one has the higher, wider, longer, and deeper love? Mm. I'm required to believe that one. Wow. Because Ephesians three makes that the measure, and and Man, so preach. yeah, the Lord. and then and then I'm just like, but there's this accusation. Oh, but maybe you're overemphasizing. Do you think you can overemphasize infinite? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, just in in human realm, sometimes this idea is like, well, a love message waters things down. I'll tell mm-hmm. you what, what. My wife push, pushing out three 11-pound babies was not watered-down love. <laughs> wow. You know, my, my, my wife putting up with my shenanigans and, and, mm. and when I was doing my best to destroy her marriage, I mean, that, mm. that, was, that was like, that's not wimpy, hippie it love. Not. It is not. It, it, it's, it, it's a crazy love that I, that I have. Uh, I'm still praying the Holy Spirit would show me. But my point mm. is this, that, that it's that Paul has given us a way to perceive that the, the love of God is more than you thought. Yes, so you just yes, always, when yes. you see competing visions of it, you you must go for the highest yeah. and, and most beautiful. Does that oh, make sense? It makes so much sense. Good grief. I'm just, all the circuits are exploding all over again because I just don't, 
I don't know how when you hear something like this. I mean, it seems Jesus is just so irresistible. Like, how can you not fall in love with a God like this? This message is so is so beautiful. There's nothing else like it. And I just, oh, I just, I would just love to give people permission. I'm not trying to do this like a televangelist right now, but it's like, <laughs> man, just to like to give yourself permission to fall in love with Jesus. And I just feel like for a lot of people who are listening and watching. This bears such witness on a deep inner way. And you need to trust that. You need to trust the witness of the Spirit and follow that all the way home. Like, yeah, th- th- this, is, this is not newfangled revelation. This is, this is yeah. the heart of God as the heart of God has always been, has always been in the text, has always been revealed in Christ. And it's just good and right to follow that message to its logical conclusion, you know, until we're fully at home in, 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 in God's own heart, the place that he's prepared for us. It's not... That's that's not about heaven. That's that that's a place prepared in the heart of God Himself, and it's ready for us to enter into even now. Yeah, it's for such grace even now. And like, you know, I wanted to talk about Brad's message at Water to Wine was so powerful on deconstruction, all that. I just want us to pick up, and we'll do another episode another time on that because I just I don't know how to throw anything on as like an addendum. But it's like we've talked about this. It's like you've had the Rolling Stones on, and now and now we're having like there's, there's nothing better than this. Like there'd be anything else just for um. How about this? Let's land here. How about for, and you've done this in different ways already, but just anything that just, you would just even feel like the Holy Spirit would give you in the moment. It just feels right. Like what? I, I just, whatever, however, whatever direction you want to take this, I feel like folks are hearing this and they're listening and their hearts are open and they want it to be true. They're longing for it to be true. Oh, 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 I hope that's right. I like, but, 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 but. Speak to that butt. Speak to that that holdout. Speak to that little bit of oh, this sounds like a slippery slope to me. Like like speak to that. Okay. <laughs> I, what's coming to me? Yeah, and and maybe it's the the gift of the Holy Spirit to remember First John chapter four. Mm. That that uh, three and four, and I'll just share some highlights that I think address these butts that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Mm. And if anything is a a what about this question, no darkness at all. And then also that, that God is love and in him, there is no hate or retribution at all. That's part of that message. And then John goes on to say this, that, that, uh, Perfect love drives out fear. Yeah. And a lot of the holdout questions, a lot of the whatabouts, if, if you look at them carefully, it's like, what is the fear that love is trying to drive out? Let it. Wow. Let it. Because, and then it says, um, because fear has to do with punishment. Yes. And so what he's, yes. what he's saying there is ultimately infinite, the infinite love revealed in the cruciform, the Christ-shaped God, yeah. the cross-shaped God, that that infinite love has come, and it's come to drive out every fear. Be mm. not afraid, says the risen Lord, yes. because fear has to do with punishment, and, God, and, and therefore God is mm. not a punisher. Mm. That, that he's not into that. Sin is a terrible punisher. The conscience is a terrible punisher. Fundamentalism of all kinds is a terrible punisher. God is not a punisher. God is perfect love, and he drives out that fear. And then it says, um, and don't don't be condemned by this, but just hear it. It's the the one who still has some fear in them has not yet been perfected in love. Well, that's talking about me. 
Mm. And I'm like, oh, I haven't yet been perfected. I feel that fear over there. Mm. Um, come, Holy Spirit, reveal the love of Jesus yes. that will drive that out. Yes. And I, uh, conversely, for those who have founded their faith, their religion, their 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 convictions on fear, mm. if if that's the foundation of your faith, what will be left of your foundations when love comes and drives it out? Yeah. Yeah. Let's make love our foundation and yeah. the, and and especially this the 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 Jesus revealed love of of God the Father through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Mm. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Well, I tell you what, this uh, I'll land on this and we'll call it night. So, I know like in my circles, you know, we always as preachers we're supposed to keep kind of a tally sheet of results from meeting or whatever i just if if this hasn't landed with anybody else like i'm ready to get saved all over again tonight i'm ready to become a christian all over tonight like i like every time i hear this and it comes to life like this i feel like i'm being born again all over again it just starts all over like i'm just just makes me want to that whole thing in revelation you return to your first love like this this is what it is you know i heard that in such a legalistic way like oh like oh i need to make myself love jesus oh oh, that's awful like to see him is to love him to see him is to love him and when christ is revealed in this way like it's impossible not to love a god like that so thank you brad for sharing this i hope this is welcome to the family thank you that's right (laughs) this is my night (laughs) i'm in you guys i'm telling i'm feeling it so awesome. Thank you so much, my friend. What a gift. Yeah, this time with you. And uh, yeah, good night, everybody. Thanks for hanging out.